Go ahead and take a seat, please. I'm going to have to keep my eye on this Steve Johnson guy. He's getting more pulpit time than I am. I don't know. I don't know. He might be gunning for my job. We'll have to see what Steve's got up his sleeve. No, he's, he doesn't want it. Wise man, wise man. Um, our, our sermon this morning, if you are a part of the congregation, you're probably expecting we're going to go to Romans as we've been going through Romans. Um, but I was up at uh, Bismarck this week, uh, shared a lesson there. And so Thursday morning when I showed up with my one day in the office, I said, we're going to reduce, reuse, and recycle. Uh, so I've done my best to adapt this. Um, that uh, workshop is mostly for ministers and elders, but um, hopefully there will be a, a connection point for us here as a congregation. There's a group of sociologists who go around and basically just depress people. Uh, they, they, they get people to answer the question. Um, they ask people to write down on a piece of paper the names of the people you know who you would be truly devastated if they died. And so they have people write down these names. And this group of names are what's called their sympathy group. And what's interesting they found is that as they've gone around and have people list the names of people who they would be truly devastated if they lost, is that most people's lists cluster around 12 individuals on that list. And it, the, the, the factors that you think would, would create longer lists, that they're clustering there. It's not like one person has two people on their list and somebody else has 22, but people are generally listing around 12 people. And I think if we think about the reasons why, that would make sense. I mean, if you have one person who had 200 friends on Facebook, you had somebody else who had 400 friends on Facebook, and you had somebody who had 600 friends on Facebook, do you think that one person would have a longer list of people who would be truly devastating if they lost them? No. Seems pretty consistent around 12 people. Or even if somebody had lived in any one of these cities, they lived in American Fork, Utah for two years, and then they moved to Dinosaur, Colorado, which is a real place, and then they moved to Placentia, California, which also is a real place, that at the end of that uh, process of six years, you think, well, they know peop more people, so surely their list would be longer than 12. But even after people have moved and lived in different places, have more acquaintances, their list still tends to be about 12 people. And there's this recognition when it comes to this sympathy group that we have a certain capacity limit in the capacity of the number of people that can be in our sympathy group. That, that just like your internet has a bandwidth cap, it can only have so much data that comes through it, there's only so many people that can be a part of our sympathy group. Just like a hose is a certain uh, width and can only carry so much water, so there's this capacity we have for people who can be the closest to us. Just like a cup has a limit in how much water you can put in a cup, so we have this limit that seems to be about 12 people, people who are in our, our sympathy group. And the question is, the recognition is, though we have these friends, there's this source of blessing associated with them, but there's this recognition that every relationship you have, it costs something doesn't it? There is a time cost. You think about the, the people who want to get together with you, the, the time that you want to spend with people, and there's only a certain amount of time you have with people. There's a convenience cost. There's only a certain number of people that you would allow to call you at any time of the day, morning, afternoon, evening, middle of the night, and say, I'll be there. You don't want that group of people to be very big because there's a convenience cost. 
There's also the emotional energy. There's only so many people you can stay up at night worrying about, wondering about how they're doing. And there's even a financial cost. I have no idea how they calculated it, but Nivea says that each friend costs you about $12,830. You know, they want to go to dinner. They want you to come to their kid's graduation. All of these sort of things come show up for the wedding. I mean, there is this cost associated with people. And so we recognize that there is a, there's an expense here. Caring about someone deeply is exhausting. And so because of that, there's a capacity limit. And most people end up with 12 people who they would be truly devastated if they were to die. But in addition to these kind of capacity groups for our, our social relationships, we find out that there is also, in meaningful relationships, there's also a capacity. There's a guy named Robert Dunbar who has looked at, at relationships and connections, and, and Dunbar's number is 150. He says you can have at most 150 meaningful relationships. If you think about my relationship to you, there's just one channel that I need to keep in touch with. But as we add more and more people into our social circle, there's more and more channels of relationship that we have to keep track of. Think about it this way. You're at a wedding and you're planning for where people are going to sit. And someone says, well, Uncle Joe, he can sit at the table with Sally. And someone says, oh, no, no. Uncle Joe and Sally cannot sit at the table together. That's going to be a disaster. I say, well, what if we move Uncle Joe over to this table? No, 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 Uncle Joe can't sit at that table either because you're realizing and recognizing there are these dynamics of all of these relationships of your friends. And at some point, it's just too much for you to keep up with juggling all of these different relationships and capacity. And so Dunbar says 150 people is the number of meaningful relationships we can maintain and sustain at the same time. Now, some of you on Facebook believe that you can maintain far more than that, but we are talking about what? Meaningful relationships. In fact, Dunbar breaks it down even a little bit closer. He says, you can have five closest friends, 15 good friends, 50 friends, and 150 meaningful relationships. And what I find really interesting about Dunbar's research and about this, this, this picture in this graph is it seems like if you overlaid this with the way Jesus did ministry, it's actually going to fit this picture pretty clearly. At the middle, we recognize that Jesus had an inner core group of people. Three, sometimes four people mentioned there as Jesus' core. We're told in Mark chapter 1 about Jesus going around and he calls the disciples, and we learn about the calling of four disciples in particular. We learn about the calling of Simon and of Andrew and of James and of John. And then in Mark 3, whenever uh, the, the disciples that Jesus calls are listed, guess who the four disciples that are listed first are mentioned? Simon, James, John, and Andrew. When he goes to the home of the synagogue leader whose daughter had died and Jesus goes into the room, we are told that he allowed no one to follow him except who? Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. At the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, we are told six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And then, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus goes to pray, it says he, he said, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And I think if we thought very much about this inner group of Jesus's, it would probably bother us, wouldn't it? 
Couldn't you imagine yourself being one of the other disciples? Say, hey, hey, Simon got to go with you last time. It's my turn to come and to be with you in this special little group. Or somebody might say, Jesus, didn't your mom teach you any manners? It's not kind to play favorites. And yet Jesus, who is well aware of the relational risks, he developed this special relationship with this inner group of disciples. In fact, we could easily say that Jesus was developing cliques in his ministry. And yet he seems to recognize there is a value in spending time with this inner circle of people. And then, of course, as you go out from this inside circle, you can go next to this larger circle of 12 disciples. And we're told in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, that he went up to the mountain and he called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed how many? Twelve. And he named them apostles to, number one, be with him, to, number two, be sent out to proclaim the message, and, number three, to have authority to cast out demons. So he has this three to four people of an inner group. Then he has these 12 that are his disciples. And then there is this next circle that goes out larger. And we don't know exactly how many people are here. Luke mentions that there were um, 12, 70 people in this group, Luke 10, 1. But it's the apostles plus the other disciples, those who, as Jesus goes around, they come with him. Mark chapter 4, verse 10 tells us, When he was alone... Those who were around him, along with the twelve, asked him about the parables. Or in Mark chapter, uh, let me find it here, Mark chapter 15, verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Josie, and Salome. They used to follow him and to provide for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. And so there is this recognition that Jesus has this group, probably about 70 people, that he is spending additional and extra time with. And so as you see Jesus' movement and his pattern in ministry, I, I come away with this conclusion that there are two things that Jesus practices with his, his relationship with people. Number one, less is more. Um, Jesus has ample opportunity to have crowds and crowds of people around him at all times, and yet he seems to be moving closer and closer to these fewer people to invest more deeply in them. And also that depth trumps width. If Jesus could have, have 150 really, really kind of casual friends, or he could have a smaller group of really intimate friends, Jesus will preference those intimate contexts. It's what Alicia Chloe calls purposeful proximity. In fact, I think Jesus' ministry could be kind of shaped like a funnel. Um, that Jesus is often trying to actually move away from these large crowds to get into smaller, more intimate settings where he can teach, where he can disciple, and where he can mentor. So I want to show three sections. I just chose these because they're scripturally close together, where you're going to see Jesus beginning a teaching in public, but he's going to want to end that in a smaller, private, intimate setting. So you have in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is teaching. Initially, we are told to some Pharisees and to some scribes. But we become aware pretty quickly, it's not just those people, because in verse 14, it says he called the crowd again, and he said to them. So there, it starts with a larger group in public. And yet, as the text goes on, by the time we get to Mark chapter 7, verse 17, we are told when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. And there it is in this private setting, in this smaller group, that Jesus begins to unpack more about what he had been teaching when he was with the larger groups in public. In Mark chapter 
9, there is uh, the story of a man who brings his, uh, his child for Jesus to heal. All right, I'm going to turn this off for a minute here. Try this again. All right, Caitlin, what I'm going to do is every time I pull on my right ear, we're going to go to the next slide. In, in Mark chapter uh, 9, uh, the, the man brings his son uh, for the disciples to heal. Jesus is gone. Um, when Jesus gets there, Jesus actually heals the man. And then we find that that all happens in front of Mark 9.14, a great crowd. But then in Mark chapter 9, verse 28, when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So you have lots of people in a public setting, and then it finally ends with Jesus with this smaller group who fit into a house where he completes his teaching. On the next slide, we'll see in Mark chapter 10, verse 1, the crowds gathered around him, and as was his custom, he again taught them. But by the time we get to Mark chapter uh, 10, verse 10, then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and now he has this private instruction. That's why I say that for Jesus' ministry, less is more, and depth triumphs with. That Jesus has the opportunity in front of these big groups of people to say these sort of things, and yet he waits to where, where it's a smaller, more intimate group where he can invest himself and he can teach the disciples um, what they need to know. On the next slide, we'll realize that we need to recognize and embrace our relational limits. If there are only a certain number of relationships that we can maintain, if Jesus illustrates his willingness to go for smaller groups of people, it makes me wonder, why do we constantly try to push past the limits? And then what happens when we do push past the limits that we have? Well, if you've ever tried to push past the limit, you'll find you get overwhelmed, you get stressed, you get exhausted, you may not sleep well, and you will be haunted by the feeling that there's always more to do. And when you're in that state, nobody gets the best you have to offer. Everyone around you simply gets the leftovers. And then not only are we going to damage ourselves, we're going to damage everyone else because life and the cues that people get is going to watch what others are doing and they're going to want to try and follow. I grew up learning to drive just south of Toronto, Ontario, so a city of 6 million people. Uh, the speed limit is 100 kilometers, kilometers per hour. And, and yet, in Toronto, people will drive at least 130, if not 140. And my parents told me, if you only drive 100, it's actually more dangerous. Because you need to find the pace and the flow of traffic. And I think people do that with church life, with relationships. If everyone else is, is overextending, they're going to feel like, I have to overdo it. And so, we push past limits. Why do we push past limits? On the next slide, we'll see. Henry Nouwen says that there are three lies people um, believe about their identity. Number one, I am what I do. Number two, I am what I have. And number three, I am what other people say or think about me. I think what drives us to push past our limits is this number three. We, we believe that what makes me important, we believe what makes me valuable, is that I have to do these things that make other people say positive things about me. There's this quote that's attributed to Michelangelo. I don't think he actually did it, but on the next slide, you'll see when he had uh, done the statue of David, Michelangelo said, somebody asked him, how did you do it? And he said, you just chip away everything that doesn't look like David. Huh, simple enough. I'm sure I could do a sculpture like that knowing that, right? But I want you to imagine what it would be like if there were actually a committee of people 
who were trying to do the David. And they each had their own hammer and chisel, and they each said, I'm going to take off what doesn't look like David. I suspect what you would end up with is just a bunch of pile of, of rocks and rubble and dust, with everybody chipping away at what they believe does not belong. And I think much of what congregational life can be that thing, if I believe what other people say and think about me, I'm going to let everybody chip away at me until, guess what, there will be nothing left. It's interesting, I find, as we go to the next slide, the number of times in the Gospels where people tried to pressure, correct, advise, tempt, or adjust how Jesus did ministry. I mean, the clearest example is the temptation, right? Where if you are the Son of God, you're going to do all of these things, and the devil has a hammer and a chisel. He says, here, let me chisel you into the kind of a person I want you to be. When Peter identified him as the Messiah and Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross and this is what's going to happen, guess what Peter did? He rebuked him. Peter's trying to chisel him into the kind of Messiah that he wants him to be. When Jesus is on the cross, those passing by say, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They're trying to chisel him into the kind of person they think he should be. The religious teachers, when Jesus talks about fasting and about food laws and about Sabbath, they don't like what he's teaching. And so they're trying to chisel him into the kind of a person that he's going to be. And if Jesus believed his identity was based on what others said and thought about him, he would try to become all these kinds of things and there would be nothing left to him. And yet Jesus cares only and exclusively about how his father feels about him, about the relationship that he has with his father. And his father is the only one that he allows to hold the hammer and chisel to form him into the kind of a person that he is. So the way that we move forward is by setting boundaries by finding a balance in our, our relationships with people. So I want to just talk about a couple of implications for those in church leadership. Of course, this was initially taught um, to elders and ministers. And then I want to talk about some implications for uh, church members. So we'll go to this next slide. When you're in any kind of public ministry, everyone has expectations of you. I think if, if, if we had time, I would get a whiteboard up here and, and I would start with, with the elders and I would say, what, what should elders be doing? And we'd write down these things, we'd write down these things, and guess what? We would fill up this entire whiteboard of things. And then if we said, well, well how many hours is associated with each of these tasks? And we added all those hours, I'm guessing we'd end up with a list of something that's like 100 hours a week. Everyone has expectations for those in public ministry about what they should be doing, what they ought to be doing. And the second thing we see on the next slide is that everyone gives a grade. And the grade they give is based on their own personal criteria and their own personal experience. So I look in the mirror and I wonder, uh, I, I look at this person and I say, according to my criteria, how are they doing? And I give them a grade. And that leaves anybody who has any sort of public ministry, leaves them with two options. Number one, they can try to get a good grade on everyone's scoreboard. And let me simply tell you, that doesn't often turn out very well. There's no possible way to add up all of these things of what everyone is demanding. It is a recipe for disaster. The second option is they can be faithful and accountable to God. And to realize that God ultimately is the one who is forming them into the kind of a person they tend to be. We'll see on this next slide that all ministry happens really in these two venues or these two places. The first is what is called on-stage ministry. These are the things that you do that are witnessed by others. 
You can be visiting someone, you can be preaching, you can be at a meeting, you can be having a one-to-one conversation, you can be visiting someone in their home. All of these things have witnesses. And then there is the backstage ministry that no one else sees. Study, prayer, preparation. And the problem is if a person believes that they, they are what everyone has to say about them, they're going to, 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 to run after all of these on-stage opportunities because that's where the accountability is, that's where the visibility is, and then behind the scenes there's going to be nothing there at all. And when you cut out the backstage ministry, you have nothing to protect. You're going to end up on stage. That will end up as a failure too. We see in this next slide what um, Mark says about Jesus. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. That's the on-stage ministry where they expect Jesus to be back there in front of everyone. And what does Jesus do? He says, we need to go on to a new place. Jesus did not do his ministry on the basis of all of those who had hammers and chisels. He did it simply on the basis of honoring God, his Father. So, next slide. Full disclosure, I have certain boundaries that are in place for me and for my ministry. Um, one of those boundaries is that... Um, I don't do appointments in the morning. Um, specifically between 9.30 and 11.30 in the morning, I'm not accessible by text. I try not to be accessible to people, of course, barring an emergency. And the reason is because that's a part of just the way my brain works. Um, if, if, if I get into doing some work and then I turn around to, to send a text, I'm going to get back and it's going to take me 30 minutes to even remember where I was, what I was doing. And what gets shortcutted in that process is... is the attention to the Word of God, the, the attention to God's calling here. And so there are certain boundaries. And I think all of us just need to think about what are some of the boundaries um, that I may need to have. Um, I think it's appropriate for all of us to say, in the middle of the night at 2 a.m., unless it's an emergency, I should be inaccessible. I should be in bed. And so we set boundaries. And so I think that there are also some implications for us as church members. We'll go to the next slide here. And I think that the thing to realize when it comes to relationships is all of us have to say, I can't do everything, but I must do something. So we have to have boundaries. That's why I have to find balance. There's, there's this recognition that as Christians, we are called to do, uh, be in relationship to people, but also to recognize we cannot be in relationship with everyone. So on the next slide, you'll see several um, years ago when we we're talking about small groups, we started talking about this aspect of a fellowship spiral. That it's a recognition that, that people are on the outside perimeter. Um, you can have more friends there, but those relationships are going to be not as deep. And as you come into the closer middle, you have more time investment, but you also have different relationships. And so I think each of us could think about what are some of the ways that I could build relationships on these different levels. So this first one on the next slide you'll see is uh, what we call foyer friends. Um, we, we all need to have some foyer friends. And in fact, this is the easiest group to maintain. This is where you can maintain up to 150 foyer friends, which means you know maybe 10 of you, you can't because we're probably about 160 people. But by and large, this is something that you can know at least something a little bit about everyone. And so... Maybe one of the, the ways that you could kind of balance yourself here is to ask yourself in this next month, just commit to meeting one person as a new foyer friend. 
you, you look around and you might see someone and say, I've never met that person. Or I don't really know anything about them. And so after church is an opportunity, just one time this month, just meet someone and begin to foster a new relationship. But on the next slide, we'll see that the, the next depth of relationship is what's called an across-the-table relationship. These are people outside of church times that, that, that you get together with and you connect with. They might be a part of your 50 good friends. And so is there somebody who is a part of that circle for you that you've lost touch with? Maybe, maybe things have gotten a little bit busy at work and you've pushed some of those relationships aside. Maybe this month what you could do is say, who is one person who, who we used to connect more often? I'm going to make a point this month to make sure that we connect. Let's sit down and get together and have some coffee. Let's get together and have a meal together. So try to reconnect with at least one person who's a part of this across-the-table relationship. And then next slide. These soul-to-soul relationships. As we get here, this group gets smaller and smaller. Um, the people who you will tell your deepest struggles to, your most significant hurts, these are the people that you will be most vulnerable with. And again, if, if you have lost touch with some of these people, then the encouragement is to re-reach out. Or if you are in touch, what's something special you can do to honor someone in that group? Do they even know? Are they aware you are one of my closest friends and I appreciate your friendship? Find one person to encourage this week in that area. As we think about relationships, these are the, the three lessons I want to be sure you go, go away with. This is on the next slide. Number one, that less is more. Number two, depth trumps width. And number three, I can't do everything, but I must do something. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we go from here, the, the, the most significant relationship we have goes with us everywhere. We go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you want to talk about where you're at in your spiritual life, if you are considering a life of commitment, uh, a life of submission in the waters of baptism, just invite you to come while we stand and sing this next song together.